I'm Daniela. Welcome to my podcast, because everyone has a story. The place to give ordinary people's stories the chance to be shared and preserved. Our stories become the language of connections. Let's enjoy it, connect and relate, because everyone has a story. Welcome, my guest, Jose Ignacio Guzman. Jose is a geoscientist and certified professional coach who balances his time and retirement between meditation, service, writing, and coaching. Jose is also one of the oldest brothers of my best childhood friend, Carlos Alfredo. They were my next door neighbors in Caracas, Venezuela. As he was older, he didn't pay much attention to us when we were little. So I didn't really know him at all. So it has been fun now as adults to reconnect and for me to learn about his story. Jose shares how he overcame significant challenges and turned them into opportunities by listening and following his inner voice of intuition. Let's enjoy his story. Welcome, Jose, to the podcast. Thank you, Daniela. Good to be here. Yes, super excited that you are here and you have a story to share with us. And Jose, how do we know each other? We were neighbors. Through all my childhood, you are the brother of my best friend, Carlos, but you're older than him. I am exactly 14 years older than Carlos. But yes, but yes, it, it was a just a wonderful, beautiful time that we had over there. And I have great memories of being neighbors. I think I told you the story. My biggest accomplishment in baseball is when we were playing on the street and I hit this foul ball that hit the window in your house and broke the window. That was my biggest accomplishment in baseball. <laughs> I always remember that. And I think it was your aunt who came back and she was upset, but then she understood. <laughs> I didn't know the story. Oh, yeah. Yeah. What happened? So that's the window of the... On the side, on the on the second story facing our house. We, we were in the street playing and I was just hitting balls with, with baseball. It was a group of us. I, I was always a terrible player, but that day I managed to hit that ball <laughs> and I broke that window. <laughs> and so my aunt came, no, my grandfather, because he's the, was the scary one. He wasn't there. <laughs> But I'm sure my parents were able to manage that. <laughs> oh, that's funny. And you look to me always like this guy who would never kill a fly. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't yeah. know the story. Well, Excellent. We both grew up in Venezuela and now we're living in different countries. I'm in Vancouver, Canada, and you're in Houston, USA. Yes, in Texas. We kept in touch and here we are recording part of your story. Jose, why do you want to share this story? It's interesting because I've been enrolled in this book writing program a couple of years ago. The person who was leading the program offered the opportunity for us to contribute a chapter to an anthology called Turning Point Moments. When she offered that, I immediately knew that I had to write this story. And again, I was trusting my inner voice. My story is called Murmurs of the Inner Voice. I knew it was the right time because I needed to share how I got to where I am right now, and how learning to listen to this inner voice led me to this good moment in which I am right now. The key message is that this inner voice, this intuition, is not reserved for, for saints or for souls that are deeply spiritual. It's anyone has access to this inner voice. We just need to learn how to listen to it and how to be 
receptive. That's why I want to share my story. I want to make sure that people know that this is not something that some people have. We all have it at different levels. Wonderful, wonderful. Jose, when does your story start? It's interesting because it didn't really start in Venezuela. There are so many turning points that we have in life. But my story actually began when my parents sent me to Colorado. That was back in 1977. And I was to begin my undergraduate studies in the U.S. I had to enroll at a local community college because my high school grades were not good enough for admission at a four-year university in the U.S. And one of the college requirements was to register for liberal education, arts, humanities, sports, those types of extra courses. And I picked a course in Hatha Yoga. It was popular at that time, right? In the 70s. It's still it's still very popular, but it now it has many, many other names. But at the time, it was just very simple Hatha Yoga. I enrolled in that class. You know, we were all instructed in the various exercises. They are called asanas. I was never able to master any of them, to be true. You know, not even to sit cross-legged. Even to this day, I still can't do it. But here's what really happened. The, the instructor was a very pleasant young woman. She would also lead us at the end of the exercises in periods of complete relaxation and then what she called meditation. That was probably the first time I ever really heard that word in a different context. She would sometimes talk about yoga philosophy and healthy diets and being a vegetarian and so on. That, that's when actually that key moment came in my life, something in me released when, when she began to talk about that. And now, years later, I understand that that was my intuition that was kicking in my inner voice, getting receptive to that message that she put out there. What happened, you know, I was, through all my teen years, I was always searching for answers. I was just not satisfied with information I was getting through high school or, you know, through my upbringing. So I kept looking for answers. So I inquired more about this meditation and yoga and began to read books on yoga and healthy living and so on. I was also inspired to go into a healthy diet to begin drinking freshly squeezed fruit and vegetable juices. I also began to eat very nutritious foods and bean sprouts, which I learned to grow myself. You know, I was getting really into that frame of mind. So here's what happened. One day I decided to visit a health food store and I became interested in buying a juice extractor and also began to get interested in other books. And I struck a conversation with the owner of the store. And the conversation was about yoga and health foods. She was very receptive. And then I left when, when I knew how much I had to pay. I had to come up with the money. So I came back to the store a few weeks later to buy the, the user. And then when I was getting ready to pay, she said, look, I have something for you. And she approached me very resolutely with this book in her hands and says, you need to read this. And the book is entitled Autobiography of a Yogi by the Aparis Paramahansa Yogananda. That is where my story really begins. It was a life-changing moment. I began to read this book and then something just clicked and popped open. And I think I read it nonstop. As I was reading it, I was essentially receiving answers to all the questions that I had been looking for. I was, I was getting all the answers. It was as if waves of in, intuitive perception of truth were coming into my consciousness. And, and for me, 
Everything that was read, it was absolute conviction. Nobody needed to try to convince me. I was convinced. And so that, that's really where it begins. Eating healthy. I mean, you grew up in Venezuela. We ate healthy. What more healthy did you do? Well, I stopped eating meat. Oh, okay. that, that, that was a big one. That was back in 1977. That was almost, what, 45 years ago. I have not eaten beef or pork ever since. I came back and began eating chicken and fish and so on because, in, in, like you're saying, in Venezuela, sometimes you don't have a choice. So that, that's what I ended up eating. And I began to, like I said, have my own bean sprouts, natural juices, and so on. Healthy in the sense that no junk food, no sodas, no alcohol. That was a, the big change for me at the moment. Inspired by these yoga teachings and by that book. And this is since you were a teenager. I was in my late teens at the time. I was, I think, 18. Yeah. Okay. And so then you live in a house with four more siblings and you have... Chichita and Clemencia, which they work in your kitchen. <laughs> yeah. How do you convince them? Your parents supported your brothers and your and your sister. How did they take it? But I was in Colorado when all this was happening. I was not in Venezuela. At least once a year, I would go back to Venezuela for vacation. And then when I finished school, of course, I, I came back to Venezuela. Four years you were away. I was almost four years away. Yes. Went back to Caracas to visit my parents and my brothers and my sister. First of all, they all made fun of me. You know, we had this big barbecue pit in, in the back of, of the house. I don't know if you remember that. Uh -huh. I renamed it. I call it the pyre of sacrifices. <laughs> <laughs> they would go on and cook all their stuff, and I would just eat whatever else was on the table. I didn't pay attention to them. I was really strong-willed. At, at some point, they got so used to it that my mother... She began to adapt. Everybody died in the house because of me. You know, even the ayacas. Well, she made special vegetarian ayacas for me. Wow. It was funny because I, I was definitely decided, strong-willed, and then kind of everybody else had to suffer because of me. <laughs> wow. I can't believe it that we were living next to a vegetarian and we didn't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, at that time, I was completely vegetarian but then I began to relax a little bit and like I say uh, eat chicken and fish but you were always very quiet I remember you were very much intrinsic within you I would say that the seed was inside of me waiting to sprout and again going back to where I feel the life turning moment in, in me is when I encountered that book and that's when the seed really started but what were the questions that you had inside of you I, I was not really satisfied with the idea that people say, oh, you're lucky and fortunate. I say, no, I don't like the idea of being subject to luck, for example. Uh -huh. I'd rather feel that I'm here for a reason. I'd rather feel that I can control that because luck is something that we can't control. It's, it's subject to chaos. I, I was not happy with it. I, of course, I always had a deep belief in spiritual things. I believed in God. I was born and raised as a Catholic. But I was not satisfied. Something there was missing. A big piece was missing. One of the key questions that I had is, why are some people born with everything, seemingly, and other people are missing basic necessities of life? I just didn't like that. Mm. I didn't like that that kind of inequality. There had to be another reason for that to be the way the way it is. That was one of the biggest questions. And like I say, I read that book, all these answers came to me. 
But at the same time, all the challenges came to me because, you know, I really had to change my life after that. I had to come up with a spiritual discipline to keep going and sustain me for my entire life. So I got the answers, but I also had to do quite a bit of work. Okay. You saw the difference between being raised a Catholic and then now you are in a, in a different spiritual path. So you, you gave up on the Catholic bar? No, no. Actually, I think that's one of the beautiful things about this particular path is that it is a universal spiritual system. We don't deny any particular religion or spiritual belief. The, the belief is that it's all the same teaching, whether it is Hindu or Buddhist or Christian, Catholic, Islamic, it doesn't matter. It's all the same teaching. It's all the same truth. It's about the same God. The interesting part with me is I probably didn't continue being a practicing Catholic, you know, like going to Mass every Sunday. And However, I feel internally that I actually became a better Catholic in terms of my own relationship with Jesus and the Church. I, I became really connected and respectful. I've always admired the devotion that many Catholics have. Very, very inspired by what they do. You could say that in practice, I stopped being Catholic, but in, in, in reality, it's just part of my system of beliefs. I, I don't exclude them at all. Mm, okay. You say the word luck. I like to use the word fortunate. What about fortunate? So I talk about in, that in, in the chapter in, my, in the book quite a bit, as to whether the things that happened to me and my family for the past 40 years, whether it was good fortune. That's when I really began to understand that it really isn't good fortune, like some people have good fortune and others don't have good fortune, is that we essentially have been creating our own destiny, and that's another word that we have to use carefully. We begin creating that destiny from the moment we're born. And, and here's a big difference, is the belief that this is not just one life we're living, that we're coming back for many, many other lives that we have lived. And we're bringing all these lessons into this life and this is why we're born the way we are born, with the things and the, that we carry on our shoulders, with the gifts that we're given, and with the challenges we're given. You see, we are born with that because we carry it from other lives. So I'm here, I'm talking about reincarnation, which of course is a deep belief in other religions, especially in India and in Buddhism. There are many religions that reject it because not a comfortable concept for them to include. But just by that particular belief in reincarnation, it opens up an entire whole new world, how you view things. And, and again, this is why I really began to get answers. That's when I realized everything is under our control. We are the ones who are deciding our own destiny by everything that we do now. Okay. Then, so you came back to Venezuela and your family were adapting to your new style of eating and you believe. And so what happened? Well, I spent only a couple of months in Caracas because I got a job. Uh, way in, 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 the, in Western Venezuela near Maracaibo. I was employed by the oil and gas industry. That's when things really began to get challenging for me. I had all that inspiration that I gained when I began to practice these things. But then I, I was faced with a lot of challenges in my life and my own personal habits that I had to overcome. 
So I actually began to kind of go downhill. I began to lose that inspiration. I began to get into some terrible habits. One of them was drinking alcohol. That brought me into situations of tremendous spiritual pain. I was doing many things that I shouldn't have been doing, and yet I couldn't control them. So that's what happened when I came back to Venezuela. You were close to Maracaibo. Obviously, people are thinking in a different ways, a different countries, a different belief, and you have to adapt. Perhaps you couldn't do what you wanted because you will, you will be fighting with too many circumstances. You were feeling isolated and then you started to drink alcohol and doing things that you were planning not to do. I was essentially following the social convention, if you may. Like you're saying, adapting, but adapting to others. Yes. Not adapting to what I really wanted to do. I really began to lose hold of that inner attunement, of that inner voice that I had. And so it became a very difficult time. And then I left working for the company. I, I came back to Caracas. And I worked for a very small private company, very, very good in terms of professional opportunity. I met my future wife there. Things were beginning to look good, but I was still deep into that habit. I forgot completely about my spiritual discipline and beliefs. I was still drinking alcohol. And I, I can tell you that I was really, really, really unhappy, even though things were beginning to look better for me on the material side of things. What year was this? It was in the 80s. This lasted for about 10 years. Daniela, I mean, it, it was what I call one of the darkest episodes in my life. I, I went back to Caracas, lived only for a few months in my parents' house, and then I moved to, um, I don't know if you know the place, San Antonio de los Altos. I remember, yes. I was at a, at a very dark frame of mind. I really felt the need to get out of it. And so this is when I actually began to practice a little bit of mindfulness on my own. And by mindfulness, I mean anything, anything that we can do to calm ourselves to center ourselves, to kind of find a little bit of peace of mind. I, I began to take long walks up in the mountain, El Avila, around the neighborhood. That was, for me, uh, quite a bit of catharsis, just walking, taking some deep breaths and so on. So that, that's when I actually began to regain a little bit of control. Then the other thing I did, I found myself drawn to temples. And these are Catholic temples. I would go there, but not during Mass. My preference was to go there if it, if it was open, when nobody was there. I used to be there on my own quietly. And guess what I was doing? Meditating and praying. I was really asking for help to get out of this dark period that I was in my life. To me, that's, that's when I, I really understood that something was really going to change in my life because I kept trying to get out of it. When you went back to Caracas, did you feel like your parents or your siblings were showing some kind of support or they didn't notice the difference? They were supportive. They thought that everything was fine because I was doing well with my work. I looked stable financially. I actually went back to school, too. I went back to get a master's degree at the Universidad Central de Venezuela in geology, which is my, my career. For them, it looked like everything was fine. But internally, I, I was just not happy. And, you know, I wouldn't share that too much with them. Only with my older brother who passed away, he just listened and understood what I was saying. But the others didn't get involved. That's the sad part. You didn't really have somebody to talk to or somebody to share. It is true, yeah. This spiritual struggle that I went through at the moment, it was essentially something that I carried internally. I really couldn't share it with anybody. In a way, it was a good thing because it forced me to go inside and try to find a way to solve it myself. 
without any external help. And like I said, the, the ways I found that were actually helping me is taking these long walks and also by going to these temples, you know, when nobody was there. To me, those were precious moments because that's when I really began to recover a little bit of peace. And again, I always felt something is going to change for the better. Then it changed or what happened? That's when the big turning point came. This apartment where I lived in San Antonio, Los Altos, it, it was facing the Pan American Highway. And this was at the, at the very top of the hills. It had a tremendous view on both sides of the apartment. To the right, the road would lead to Caracas. And to the left, the road would lead to the city of Los Teques. On Sunday mornings, it was very, very quiet. And I am the kind of person who would get up very, very early. So I would go to the balcony. One of those perfect moments when you really feel peaceful and calm. One of those particular moments in my balcony on a Sunday morning, I was just glancing to the left, of course, into the city of Los Teques and beyond the clouds. And I knew about this place, which is called Interweb. It's the research branch of the Venezuelan National Oil Company. I knew that the place was there. I had never been there. And I knew that it was just a fantastic place to be, uh, you know, one of the best uh, research institutes in the world. Suddenly, it, this just happened, you know, it, the thought flashed in my mind, you know, what if someday I could actually work there? What if I could go there and, and be part of this tremendous institution? And it wasn't just a, a vague idea. I mean, something really strong came into my mind. It was like a big prompting that say, okay, you think about this and try to get there. Now I understand that was one of those inner murmurs of the inner voice. You know, sometimes we ignore it or sometimes we pay attention to it. At the moment, believe it or not, I kind of ignored it because I, my rational mind would come back and say, no, forget it. You know, the, the academic entry requirements are just too high and you don't have the degrees to get there. Every time I would go to that balcony and I would glance in the direction of where this place was, I always felt that prompting. What if you could go there someday and work there? What, what happened a few months later, I attended a week-long training for geologists. I had the opportunity of, to establish a conversation with one of the leaders of the geology department of that research institute. She struck the conversation with me and, and asked me, are you aware that we're hiring yeah, but I just, you know, I don't meet the requirements that you have. This is when everything, boom, came back. She told me, well, we're now valuing experience as well. And, and that, that's when I said, this is actually materializing now. This is happening. She contacted me back. I think it was maybe two or three weeks later. And she says, how would you like to apply? Things are changing here at the institution. And we would like to have people like you with experience, even if you don't have all the degrees or usually required. So I applied and I was offered a position. And let me tell you, here's the most incredible thing. It was just about that time that they were changing the requirements for entry and they were allowing people with experience to go into the institution. They, they also considered the fact that I was actually working on my master's degree at the time. That was one of the best, best chapters in my life in terms of professional work. Wonderful. Why was that place, the Research Institute, so important? Why would you think that that was going to change anything? Because you were working in good places. Was this one different? That's actually an interesting question. I didn't know that it, it was special for me, except that I felt 
attracted to the place. What, what happened is that I began to do work that was more involved with research, which was actually deeply inspiring for me. But then the other thing that happened is that this uh, research institute is nested in a valley just outside of Los Teques. And it has a lot of green bells and, and walking paths, a couple of creeks and lots of places where you could go at lunchtime or after work, take walks, areas where I could go and meditate. Well, I guess nobody knew that I was doing that except maybe walking. But I would do that very often. Doing that began to change everything for me because I was really kind of coming back to that starting point when I read that book back in 1977. I, I was regaining ground on my spiritual path and at the same time I was growing professionally. That, that was not just because of me. The, the people at that institute, just some of the brightest people I've ever met were working there and they were all such an inspiration. I mean, the whole thing for me became a springboard professionally and spiritually. Mm, that sounds amazing. That place still there? It's still there. It's not the same anymore? It's not the same. It's also part of the story, why we eventually had to leave Venezuela for all the political reasons that we know. How long were you there for? I was there first for three or four years, and then something even more amazing happened. One day, I was called to the office of the manager of the Department of Geological Sciences. And I walk into his office, and there's these two other leaders sitting there and say, oh, what did I do? <laughs> I was a little bit apprehensive. I sat down, and you know, after a few icebreakers and pleasantries, the manager came up and said, hey, Jose, you know, we think you can make a very good candidate for a scholarship to go and get a PhD in the U.S. What do you think about that? <laughs> <laughs> I was a little bit daunted because what I had to do in order to qualify, it was a big deal. You know, I had to finish my master's degree. I had to be ready. I had to get admissions in the university in the U.S. for a doctoral program. That's no easy road to take. However, I said yes right away. And I did fulfill the requirements. In 1995, we flew out of Venezuela into Austin, in Texas, where I began my doctoral program at the University of Texas, which was, of course, a tremendous life opportunity for my family, my son and my wife. For me professionally, it was tremendous too. Spiritually, it was also a big deal because then you, you asked me about people who could support me in my ideas. Well, this is where I began to find them. I began to go to meditation groups. We were there for four years until 1999 when I graduated. And then we all came back to Venezuela. Came back to the same research institute to go back and continue working for them. But you know, that was 1999. That's when things really began to go downhill politically and socially and economically. That's when things began to get tough. You could not find any groups of spirituality in Venezuela. I did. There was a very, very small meditation group in Caracas, but it was so difficult to get there that I, I simply gave up. I went a couple of times. Very beautiful people, but it, it just didn't work out for me. You know, I kept doing everything on my own. I see. However, when I came back from the U.S. in 99, I was already better grounded spiritually. Uh, one of the things that happened is I gave up this alcohol habit. I, and by that, you know, I don't mean that I was an alcoholic. I mean, I was just a regular drinker like anybody in Venezuela or anywhere else. Drinking alcohol is totally opposite of what you would do when you practice meditation. 
So the two things cannot go hand in hand. I either had to give up alcohol or meditation. You're telling me that you cannot drink even socially to be able to meditate? First of all, I choose not to drink. It's not that I'm told not to. I choose not to. It's number one. But number two, when you're trying to meditate, you're trying to bring your consciousness in. You're trying to interiorize your consciousness. When you drink, you're taking it out. It goes in the, in the complete opposite direction. You cannot be sitting there and having two opposite flowing currents at the same time. You're going to be torn apart by doing that. You are not meditating all day. If you are with friends and you drink, that cancel the meditation that you did in the morning or the, that you're going to do next day? Yeah, it would reduce the effects of the meditation. I mean, I, I meditate twice a day in the morning and in the evening, follow a specific routine. But then what you try to do is you try to carry the effects of the meditation throughout the day. Try to stay connected spiritually. So again, you try to maintain your consciousness center as much as you can. By, by drinking, it takes all that, that away. And, and to be honest, you know, at some point I say, you know what, I don't want it. I don't need it anymore this drinking stuff. I see what it does to other people. You know, I say, I don't need that anymore. And, and it, it, it's amazing. I feel completely free of that habit. And that has really helped my, my spiritual practices tremendously. I still don't understand how he, the alcohol takes it out. <laughs> Remember, this is an, a, a stimulant that you're putting into your body. Okay. okay? And w what it does, it, it, it essentially, it begins to drop your inhibitions. Yeah. And you, you're no longer necessarily in control of what you do. You know, alcohol is beginning to take over, even, even a little bit. You know, you're beginning to relax and you're beginning to feel peaceful. But it's not because you cause that moment of peacefulness and, and, and calmness. It's the alcohol acting on you. You are depending on the alcohol to do that for you. In my case, the after effects of meditation is these tremendous moments of peace and calmness and times of bliss. I'm sure if you take drugs, you might, you might feel like that, but, but it's not the same. Here, when you're meditating, you're not depending on anything except yourself to be able to reach those states. I mean, I'm a coffee drinker. I could say that, yeah, coffee is a stimulant. It is true. I drink once a day. Okay. So what you're saying is that those people that like to drink alcohol to take away the inhibitions and to relax, actually the goal is that you do that yourself through meditation. Yeah, absolutely. I've learned to observe now the true effects of doing that. For me, it was a huge deal to give that up. If you have deep spiritual goals, this is definitely something important to, to watch to keep an eye on. I, I'm a strong-willed person. And of course, it, it takes a lot of willpower to do that, especially when you're in groups. I mean, you, you can imagine, you know, my family, every time we get together, they drink and they eat meat. And, and here I am. <laughs> I don't drink. I don't eat meat. I'm the one who has to adapt. And it's fine. It's fine. I'm so used to it that it no longer bothers me at all. I, I just live my life the way it is. Sometimes they make fun of me, but mostly they now they respect what I do. Mm -hmm. Okay. You went back to Venezuela and in 1999, things were different. That's when things actually began to go downhill because one of the things that happened is that the government wanted to take control of the oil industry at the time, which was a very, very efficient industry. And this research institute happened to be at the center of that struggle. At first, you know, it was kind of a very quiet thing that was happening internally, but then it was open. It became essentially a political battleground. That's, that's how I call it. What used to be a place where people would have great, great scientific ideas and breakthroughs and contributions, it suddenly became something else. So I began to get ready just in case things got difficult. 
things got ugly. I, I continued with my going on my walks around the campus, doing my meditations, and I kept, you know, looking for insights as to what to do next. I, I began to get ready. And then back in 2002, that's when it really got difficult. That's when all these massive protests and demonstrations began to happen in, in Caracas and in many other places in, in the country. My wife and I decided we're, we're going to go there and protest. And then when it came to at the end of 2002, you know the story, you know, the old industry, the employees, uh, we went on strike, but it didn't end well. The strike ended, I think it was a month and a half later after we went on strike, they decided to begin laying off people. By the end of February in 2003, they had laid off over 18,000 people from the oil and gas industry, including me and my wife. They had a list, right? Put it on TV and the newspaper and then your name was there, you knew. Oh, yes. My name came up on one of the newspapers on February 4th of 2003, along with 800 other people from me. That was it. That was the end. I told you the story of how I got there. To me, it's a beautiful story. How I was guided by my inner voice to go work there. And then the whole thing ended in chaos. These are these dualities that we have to deal with in life. It looked like we were subject again to chaos, but, but no, it, it, everything had a reason for happening. I don't like to use the word being fortunate. I was ready, as I told you. I was getting ready just in case things turned ugly. A few weeks after I got laid off, I was offered a contract a position in Mexico, which I went there and, and did several trips and, and did this work. And then I applied for a position here in Houston. This company wouldn't necessarily hire somebody like me. They were looking for writers. And, and here's it. Here's the key thing. English is my second language. So I, I remember being interviewed by the owner of the company, and he said, wait a second, you know, how, how is it that you pretend to do this position where we need technical writers, and you know, English is not your first language? And I said, well, you wouldn't believe it, but I write in English much better than anyone who is born in this country, and I can prove it. Really? They gave me a, a test report, which I did very well. They hired me. They offered me a three-month trial position, but they paid for all my expenses to move from Venezuela to Houston. And I spent five wonderful years working for them. I, again, this happened because a lot of people would say, well, you are lucky. And well, not necessarily. You know, I was paying attention. I was seeking guidance. I was praying. I was receiving some guidance as to what to do. And I paid attention to that and I, I listened. And this is something that we can all do. We all have this voice. But, you know, we have to find moments to be able to listen to it and be receptive to it. Let it guide us. Anyone can be guided by this voice. It was true that you wrote English better than you wrote Spanish? Yes, yes. Oh, and how did that happen? I don't know. Well, maybe I do. There's many things that we bring from our lives. As I said earlier, this has to do with uh, my system of beliefs. I've always been a good writer in English from the very first moment when I had the opportunity. It's easier for me. This has been one of the strengths that I knew that I had to develop and, and use it. And, and now I'm, I'm using it to share my story as well. That's incredible because it's, it's not easy. At least for me, it's super hard. For me, writing is very, very easy in English. If I try to write in Spanish, which I have, I had to write many technical reports uh, back in Venezuela. It was for me a bigger struggle. I mean, writing in Spanish is not that simple. In English, I feel it's easier. The grammar is easier, for sure, as you know. <laughs> <laughs> okay, and so then you were five beautiful years working in that company in, in Houston? Yeah, and then I went on my own 
to do a little consulting. There are little stories where this inner voice, again, came back and, and helped me out. I ended up working in the past seven or eight years for a uh, the Norwegian state oil company. They had an office here in Houston. And then back in October 2020, they were looking for volunteers. We're in the middle of the pandemic. They're reducing the workforce. Many companies were doing that. I was probably the first one to volunteer. I, I felt I was ready, which is a relative term. Retired from full-time work, yes. Retired from being active, productive, no. I, I simply switched into something else. And that something else is what I'm trying to do with coaching and also trying to become a writer, a really formal transformational writer. So these are my current two big projects. You're still meditating twice a day. You don't drink, you don't eat beef, but only beef. You do eat other meats. I don't eat pork either. What about your son? Yeah, we have one son and one beautiful grandson. Do you teach these lessons to your son? No, I normally don't really talk too much about this unless somebody is interested and ask me for it. I'm not a spiritual teacher. I'm a spiritual student. I prefer to follow and simply practice routine of meditation and, and so on. If someone is interested, then I, I can probably strike a conversation about that. There's always a common thread when you're doing mindfulness work is that you need to learn how to control the way you breathe. If deep breathing or a little bit of watching your breath, these are, this is a standard technique that is used across essentially all practices, including therapy, yoga, of course. You know, right now, even the Catholic Church, they are using something called centering prayer which is another word for meditation. It's just that they don't use meditation because, you know, this is going to be woohoo, something different. No, no. So they call this centering prayer. Guess what they do? They practice deep breathing. They know that they need to relax, bring calmness. In. And the end result of doing all this is that people develop their intuition. Again, this inner voice, which I keep coming back to. And, and this is what I'm trying to do in my coaching. And why I do that? Because say, I'm, I'm bringing this into the equation. This idea that just if you're calm, you're going to let your intuition guide you into whatever you need to do. Even that you went to Colorado when you were younger, and then you went back to Venezuela, and then you went to Austin to do your, your PhD. How was it to adapt at the end? These opportunities, you wanted to leave because you wanted to study, but then the last move was more you had to do it. How was that? It was, at the beginning, it was difficult. Because like you're saying, you know, I was very happy with what I was doing in Venezuela. We were happy. We were doing well. But we, we felt the need to leave. It, it took us a few years to actually adapt. And now, I mean, you, you, you don't feel the difference. It's like any immigrant. You keep the things that are true to yourself, the best of what you bring. For example, we bring good things from Venezuela into this culture. We don't lose that. But then, you know, you begin to learn other different aspects of different cultures and you begin to be more accepting. And at some point, it became very, very, very easy, especially in my case, again, because I was very active on my spiritual journey. It doesn't matter if I'm here or in Europe or anywhere. I, I know that things are going to go well. Okay. Yes, yes. I feel like yeah. it's not easy to move when you're older, when you are settled, and also when you don't want to. <laughs> Wonderful. This is your story. So you wrote the book with other people. It's an anthology. I contributed a chapter. It is 41 authors. An amazing story. And they can get the book on Amazon? And the name of the book? They can get it on Amazon. It's called Turning Point Moments. Turning Point Moments. And yours is? 
is chapter 22. It's called Murmurs of the Inner Voice. Wonderful. Yeah, muchísimas gracias. Thank you so much for sharing your story. It was amazing and, and I love because I didn't know all this part of you. Thank you so much for sharing. I've been honored to be able to share this story. I always say that when, I, when I'm sharing my chapter of this book and when I'm sharing this story, that I'm spreading some seeds. Maybe some of them might fall on some fertile ground and they will sprout. I'm not, I'm not trying to change anybody here. I'm just trying to throw some inspiration out there. And whoever needs it is going to get it. So thank you. Thank you for the opportunity. Wonderful. In the show notes, we will put all the information about your book, about your coaching, bio, so people will get there. And thank you for all you're doing. This is fantastic. Thanks. You're doing great work. Great service to humanity. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed it, today's episode. I am Daniela, and you were listening to Because Everyone Has a Story. Please take five seconds right now and think of somebody in your life that may enjoy what you just heard or someone that has a story to be shared and preserved. When you think of that person, shoot them a text with the link of this podcast. This would allow the ordinary magic to go further. Join me next time for another story conversation. Thank you for listening. Hasta pronto.